Thank you for joining together with us today. We count it as a privilege that we get to celebrate this, but we get to celebrate someone being made alive in Christ, that, that the old man has been done away with and that we are raised to newness of life. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that joy that Nate experienced just a moment ago is meant to be ours as well. We're, we're meant to have that continual joy with us. But you know, so often we forget who we are. So often we forget our identity. So often we forget that we are in Christ. And, and it And if we forget, we can begin to live as if that's not true. That was the problem for the church in Corinth. They often were forgetting. They had forgotten really who they were. They weren't living based on their identity. We're we're going through, in case you're new to the church, you're visiting. um, My name is Matt Rawlings, by the way, one of the pastors here. But we're going through a letter from Paul to the church in Corinth. And in this letter, he's continually addressing a bunch of things that are wrong in the church and Really, all throughout, they've forgotten who they are because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've forgotten their identity. And so he's coming back to that and tackling another topic. And he's going to address, really, the topic of disputes or lawsuits. But really, the passage, he's trying to remind them who they are. Because like us, they forgot their identity in Christ. And when they forgot their identity in Christ, they went back to their old ways of living. And that's our temptation as well. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. This is God's holy inspired word that's profitable for us today. Let's read it together. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and that? Before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your brothers. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would take this word written 2,000 years ago and apply it to our hearts, to our motives, to our minds today. Would we be transformed as we 
behold you. And as we behold, Lord, the fact of, of who we are in you and who you made us to be, Lord, would that change the way we think about each other? Would that change the way that, that we relate to each other? Lord, would you give us fresh faith and hope in who you've made us to be, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's estimated that about 40 million lawsuits are filed every year in the United States. That's pretty shocking, given that we are only a country of 330 million people. That's about 12% of the population, roughly. Now, not every person is, every lawsuit represents one person, but that's roughly 12% of our population, 40 million every year. You know, I, I don't know that that is slowing down, that that pace of lawsuits seems to be speeding up. And most of those lawsuits are not criminal in nature, but they're civil law. They're to do with one party wronging another or one party feeling injustice and one party wanting to get their rights, to get their way, to get payback. In, in Corinth, lawsuits were really common as well. Often they were between the elite classes and the poor, and sometimes the elite would use lawsuits to punish the poor because they couldn't pay for good defense, and that's not too uncommon to our own experience that often the rich seem to get off of charges because they can afford to pay for good lawyers. Lawsuits were used often to defame people in that day, to disparage their reputation, they were used because they were greedy. They were trying to get money to extort other people. Lawsuits were extremely common in Corinth, and at some point in their lives, almost every citizen in Corinth would be involved in a lawsuit of some type. At age 30, they were asked to participate in juries, and they often competed to be on juries because they got money for doing it. That's a little different than today when you try to avoid jury duty because you get paid like 12 bucks a day. When you turn 60 back in that day, they would be asked to adjudicate matters. So it was a, a large portion of their population in some way was involved in lawsuits. It was kind of the air that they breathed, this, this idea of securing their rights in the courts, of getting what they thought they deserved in the courts, of, of securing the reputation in the courts. And, and unfortunately, the people in the church in Corinth, they were doing the same things. And Paul, he is addressing this grievous practice because they're still living like they are not believers in Jesus Christ, like they've not been transformed. Now, I know that, that most of you in this room will not be in a lawsuit, Lord willing. I know some of you probably have been engaged in a lawsuit. Some of you will go to court, but the majority won't have lost, be engaged in a lawsuit. And, and by God's grace, the majority won't be involved in a lawsuit against somebody else in this church, right? Can I hear an amen on that one, please? So this message is not to correct something that's rampant. We're, we're going through the letter to the church in Corinth, and by God's grace, he has this for us. But I believe he has this for us so that we can see some things to avoid getting to that place because lawsuits don't start in the court. They start in the heart. They start with a heart that demands their rights, with a heart that demands our own way, a heart that, that wants to preserve and protect our reputation. They start in small disputes. Paul, he is correcting the fact that the first impulse of the church in Corinth was to secure their rights. 
their first impulse was to, to get their own way, to protect their reputation. Their first impulse was not to turn to God's holy word and, and look to him for wisdom, not to look for the wisdom that God's given each and every believer by the Holy Spirit, but it was to turn to the old worldly methods. I don't think that's too far-fetched for us today. When someone wrongs you, what's your first response? In your heart, at least. You may not outwardly respond, but when someone wrongs you, do you ever think, well, that's not right. I want my rights. Maybe it's a spouse or your child or your neighbor. Maybe it's someone here in church. When you're wronged, when you are involved in a dispute, where do you go? What are you motivated by? This passage helps address some of these motives. When they were wronged, they immediately turned back to their old ways because they'd forgotten really who they are. They'd forgotten who they were saved to be. They'd forgotten really what they were saved from. You might not be able to relate to lawsuits, but each and every person here can relate to disputes and disagreements, right? How many people here have been in a dispute or a disagreement just this past week of some kind? Any disagreement, any dispute this week? I'm raising my hand on purpose because I've been too. Now, it might have been with a spouse. That's probably our most common place if you are married or maybe with a sibling if you have siblings or a parent or someone else. You might not be able to relate to lawsuits, but we can relate to disputes and what causes them. If you've ever handled a dispute wrongly or made a mistake in a dispute, this passage, it applies to all of us. I can promise you, if you've not yet had a dispute with a believer, you will. That sounds awful to say that if you've not yet had a dispute with, an unbeliever, with a believer and somebody may be in the church, you're going to. How do you handle that? How do you avoid getting to the place where the church in Corinth was? Well, Paul really, he provides a diagnosis for them and he provides really a way out for them as well in doing so. He's, he's critiquing them. He's coming down pretty hard on them. This is a, a, a pretty aggressive passage. But really, if we look at this passage, it provides a diagnosis really to help us see the heart and what kind of heart we need that will apply in helping us avoid disputes. The first thing we see is that Paul is telling them that they're saints with the future. We're saints with a future. That's meant to inform how they live today on the here and now. Their future security as saints is meant to inform how they interact with people in the here and now. Now, how does that apply to us? You see, if, if, if you are insecure about who you are in Christ and, and the fact that your future is secure in him, you're going to try to grasp and hang on to what you have in this life, whether it's your honor, your reputation, money, or influence, because you think that that will get you security. Instead, what we need to understand is that we're secure in Christ because we have a secure future in him as his saints. Paul, he, he is flabbergasted. He says, when one of you has a grievance with another one, does he dare? And now in the original language, it begins with dare someone? How dare you? How dare you do something like this? That you're employing the wisdom of the world. You're claiming to be wise, and yet you're employing the wisdom of the world against a brother or sister in Christ? Paul here, he's not saying that there's no grounds ever for a believer going to court. In fact, Paul used the court systems 
And in Romans 13, Paul, Paul encourages people to submit to the, the governing authorities, including the magistrates and, and the courts. And, and so I, I don't believe this is primarily relating to criminal courts or criminal matters. This is primarily relating to civil matters or civil disputes. And there are times when believers need to use the courts who are put there by God for criminal matters. But that's not what was happening here. What was happening is that people were suing each other, going if they had a grievance or a matter against one another. These were civil disputes. No doubt some of them were being wrong. Some of them were being treated unfairly. Some of them were being abused and even defrauded. People were stealing from each other. And Paul says, how dare you do that? How dare you go to court? Because you've forgotten, really, who you've been made to be. You're saints. You've been made holy and righteous before God. And he continuously uses the phrase saints here to refer to them. Look, look at the end of verse, of verse 1. He says, how, 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 instead of going to the saints, those who've been made holy, and he refers throughout the passage to saints, to brothers, to those who are made holy in Christ. If you are a saint, what does that mean? It means that you've been made holy. You've been sanctified. You've been set apart for God. You've been made righteous. So he says, why would you go to those who are unholy? If, if you've been made holy, why would you go to those who are unholy with figuring out how to resolve a dispute? And for us today, if, if you've been made holy in Christ, if you've been given a new mind, a renewed mind in Christ, if you've been given new motives, new desires, new, a new kingdom to live for, why would you look to the old kingdom ways to resolve your disputes? Why do you go to the unrighteous to resolve differences between those who are righteous? Do you think you're going to get righteous results from the unrighteous? If you're saints, the holy ones of God, why would you seek wisdom of the unholy ones who are unsanctified and unrighteous before God? Now, we might not be going to unbelievers to resolve disputes that we have in our marriage, in our home, in our church, but do we turn back to ways of the world or, or worldly wise ways, unrighteous ways, instead of turning to the ways that, that God has provided both in his word and by his Holy Spirit? Do you trust God's word? Do you trust the spirit to help resolve differences and disputes? Are you, are you looking to the fact that you are saints secure in him, your future secure in him, or do you try to get respect do you grasp for your rights? Do you get and try to demand what you think you deserve? Those are unrighteous ways of dealing with a dispute. And it reveals that we've forgotten who we are and that our future is secure in him. He says, do not know, look in verse 2, that the saints will judge the world not only is Paul, he's discouraging trying to resolve matters of dispute between other believers and turning to the world. He's also giving an eternal perspective and saying, listen, you have a high and holy calling. You have, your, your calling is so secure that you're going to be involved in judging the world. There will come a day when all of the things of this world will come to an end. All the things that we hold most dear here, that sometimes we fight for here, 
There'll come an end to all those things. We're going to judge the world and we're going to judge between what's godly and ungodly. All of us who are in Christ, this is a mystery here. We're going to assist Jesus in some way in not only judging the world, but look in verse 3. He says, do you not know where to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? Your future is secure in Christ. He is going to give you and has given you the ability to somehow assist him in having his mind and having his wisdom to discern matters. So why would we, if we're going to be judging the world and judging angels, why would we then turn to unrighteous means to judge between our dispute and matters pertaining to this life? He's using the argument of the, of the greater to the lesser. If, if we're going to be able to judge eternal matters, then don't you think that God's going to enable you to judge matters pertaining to this life? Second thing we're going to see in verses 4 to 8 is that we're a family of saints with a shared mission. We need our identity informed by the fact that we're saints with a secure future, and that should inform how we relate to each other, and that we're also a family of saints with a shared mission. We're, we're not independent people. We are not called to Christ on our own. We're called to be a part of the church body. We're called as part of the church family, as saints who are a family. And we're given a shared mission. We can only accomplish it with each other. Back in 1985, there was this rare case of encephalitis that it's, it's a virus that attacks the brain and the nervous system. And it left the 47-year-old conductor, musician, named Clive Waring, he was unable to remember anything before that year. He was, he was also incapable of forming any new memories with a memory span lasting only a few seconds, as the New Yorker reported back in 2007. And it was documented in a film called The Prisoner of Consciousness. And, and he visibly struggled with his condition, aware that something was terribly wrong with him. He was under the constant impression that he had just emerged from unconsciousness because he had no evidence in his own mind, of ever being awake before that moment. Sometimes as Christians, we can act like that. We can, we can be forgetful of who we are in Christ. And if you're forgetful of both who you are in Christ, your future in Christ, who he's made you to be, what he's called you to, you're going to go astray in relating to other people. The church in Corinth, they've forgotten who they were. They've forgotten their mission. And there's so many times when I, I forget who I am and I forget that I'm a part of a church family. I'm a part of a church family of saints who's on a shared mission together. And when I forget that, I can be tempted to look out for number one, to secure who I am and my own future in dispute. I can be motivated by self-preservation if I forget that I've been given a family that I'm a part of and to take care of. We can be motivated by selfishness and, and act as if we don't care for anybody else. We forget that we're a family on a shared mission. You know, when you're responsible for a family, it changes you. And it changes you in shocking ways. When, when I was young and single, I was extremely selfish. I'm not, I'm not done with being selfish, but thanks be to God, I'm not like I was before. And what primarily God used was being a part of a family and realizing that, that I didn't belong to myself, that, that I, I belonged to a family unit. I needed to take care of other people. And it changed and shifted my focus. When you have a family, you inherently protect your own family. You want to provide for your family. 
But the Corinthians, they'd forgotten that they were part of a family. They weren't treating each other like brothers and sisters in Christ. They were treating each other as if they were unbelievers. And they were just looking out for themselves. Look in verse four, he says, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? If you have cases, why do you put them before other people who have no standing outside of the church instead of putting it before your own family? It's as weird as if I have an issue with one of my kids, I would go out into the neighborhood and start declaring to the neighbors, hey, I have an issue with one of my kids and looking for help from them. They would, they would give me a weird look. They would think I was a little crazy. They would think I was incompetent. And they were like, I don't want to get involved in that. When we became Christians, we were rejecting the standards of the world. We were renouncing living according to the ways of the world. We're saying that the wisdom of the world can't save us. It doesn't guide us in how we live ultimately. So if the standards of the world can't give us wisdom, they don't serve as an accurate guide for our daily lives, then why in the world would we look to worldly ways and to the world to resolve disputes is what Paul's saying. They aren't qualified. They're not part of our family. They're not qualified. They've not been made holy. They're not saints. They're not part of the household of God. Why would you look outside of the household of God to resolve problems inside the household of God? Sadly, that's the case for many continuing today. The top reason of, for lawsuits within the church is, is property disputes. When a church splits or has other issues and they argue over money and property, and they go to the court system instead of figuring out how in the world can we represent Jesus? How can we give up our rights? Look at verse five. He says, I say this to your shame, brothers. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute among the brothers? What he's saying to them is, you claim to be wise in so many ways. You claim to have all this superior wisdom. And is it really true that there's no one wise? How can it be that there's nobody wise enough to settle a dispute among the brothers? Is there no one who's been born again? Now, he's not saying there isn't anybody wise among them. He's, he's shocked that although they declare wisdom, they're acting like there's no one among them who has the wisdom of God. His, his goal in, in shaming them is, is not to, to get them to be stuck in their guilt and shame, it's to get them to repent. And then look in verse 6, he says, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. They were airing their, their family's dirty laundry before unbelievers. And it was having a negative effect on their, on their witness. It was having a negative effect on their testimony. Just like it had a negative effect on my testimony, my witness, if I took all of my internal squabbles in my family out into the public square and told all my neighbors about it. They would be like, I don't want to be like that guy. And they were doing this in the church. They were taking internal matters. They were going to the courts and, and they were defaming the name of Jesus. It was causing rifts in the church. It was causing arguments and resulting in bitterness and unforgiveness and division and people choosing sides. And it wasn't just harmful for the church. It was really speaking lies about who Jesus is. It was speaking lies about the power of the gospel. To act like the church can't resolve differences is to say that Christ did not die to reconcile us to God, that he didn't die to make us ambassadors of reconciliation, as if he's not able to reconcile us to our fellow man, that he can reconcile us to God, but he can't reconcile us to our fellow man? 
To take disputes publicly is to say something wrong about the gospel. It's to defame the gospel witness. But Ephesians 2, it tells us really what's true. In Ephesians 2, 13, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you have been, who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the reality of who we are. For in him, he himself is our peace. He has made, both one, made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Taking our disputes to court, trying to resolve disputes by by worldly means is, is making a false declaration about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's contrary to the message of the gospel. It sends the wrong message as if Christ died so that we might seek our own right. What's the most recent dispute you can think of? And don't say it out loud, but in your, maybe it's in your home with a fellow believer in your house, or maybe it's in your neighborhood, in the church, the fellow Christian. Think back to what you were looking for. What were you seeking? Were you seeking things motivated by worldly means? Were you seeking your rights? Were you seeking to protect your honor? Were you seeking respect? What was causing those quarrels and fights among you? Isn't it what James tells us? We're, we're wanting something, we're not getting it. We're looking to worldly means and fighting to get those things. In verse seven, Paul says, acting that way and to have lawsuits, taking it to their conclusion, to have lawsuits at all. It doesn't matter if you win in court, is what he's saying. If, if you've won, if you, just going to court is a defeat for you. Even if you win, you've lost. It shows that self-interest and self-desire has overcome love in the relationship. I think to myself, sometimes I can act like a lawyer. You ever act like a lawyer when you're having an argument with your spouse? You ever act like a lawyer when you're having a dispute with another believer and you're bringing up your list of grievances, you're bringing up your list of rights, you're proving yourself right so you can prove the other person wrong? Well, what are you getting from that? What are you seeking to get from that? If we begin that way, we've already lost. Jesus came to give us peace, not only with with the Father, but with each other. Family squabbles brought into the public light It gives the inaccurate perspective that that God's word doesn't contain all that we need to know about how to live godly lives and live in a manner that's pleasing to him. But you know what? Here's the truth. Here's the reality. The gospel of Jesus Christ applied to our lives in very specific everyday ways. It will transform the way we live and enable us by his spirit to live for him and actually resolve disputes. You see, the message of the gospel is that we are no longer living to secure our own rights. Because Jesus didn't live to secure his rights, he lived to give up his rights. He gave up every right that he had to worship. He gave up every right that he had to be treated with honor and respect. He gave up dignity. He gave up every right he had as the 
very incarnate Son of God. And why did he do that? So that he might secure us in him. The message of the gospel is that we no longer have to secure our own rights because he has secured us in him. We no longer have to grasp and hang on to what we think we deserve because Jesus has given us what we don't deserve. He's given us all of his righteousness and we don't have to earn that. We don't have to hang on to that. We already have all the respect of God the Father because we have the respect of the Father as if we are Jesus himself. He treats us like the Son. That's scandalous. It's mind-blowing. He views us as completely acceptable, just as Christ is completely acceptable. We don't have to look for acceptance. We don't have to look for our rights. We don't have to demand those things any longer because Jesus died to set us free from living for ourselves because he's already given us himself. And as Christians, we're called to suffer. It's not a popular message. But he's called us to suffer following in his footsteps. And, and Paul's already talked to the Corinthians about this, taking up their cross. He says, you know, I, I proclaim to you nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And, and, and he was applying that to, to how they lived in the church. We're called to follow in his footsteps because he suffered and bled for us. The Christian life is one of dying to self and dying to living for ourselves, giving up our rights for the good of others. And when the church in Corinth was taking their disputes to court, they were acting like they didn't have a gospel mission. They were acting like they weren't part of a gospel family. But Jesus, he taught us to live in a very different way. He taught us something that was very radical. In Matthew 5, he says, you heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, don't resist anyone who is evil. We're not even talking about evil people here in the church in Corinth. But, but Jesus is saying, don't even resist people who are evil. And then he says in, in the latter half of 39, in Matthew 5, 39, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This is, this is not just, okay, take it. It's offer up the other side. If anybody would sue you, now he's talking about Unbelievers, if, if unbelievers, in verse 40 of Matthew 5, if anyone will sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If he takes your outer tunic, let him have your cloak too. Anybody forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. We're not going to read the rest of the passage, but if this is how we're to relate to unbelievers, then what, what does it say about how we're to relate to fellow believers in the church who are saints, part of the same family? We have a shared mission. We're in this together. If Christians live like our rights matter most, we're communicating a message that's contrary to the gospel. We're communicating that getting what we want is most important instead of loving one another like Jesus. Instead of the church in Corinth suffering wrong and giving up what rightfully may be theirs. He's not saying that, that they weren't being defrauded, they weren't being wronged. He's saying, why not be wronged? That's a hard message to take for us as Christians today, isn't it? Somebody, let's say somebody here in church or your spouse or a fellow believer here, he's wronged you. 
Why not be wrong? Okay. That's radical. How, how in the world can you think that way? You can only think that way if you are secure in the fact that you are a saint, like he is talking about here, that God has made you holy. You don't need to secure your rights. And who cares if, if we're wronged? Because Jesus has already given us all the things we don't deserve. He's given us his righteousness. He's given us his holiness. He's given us an inheritance in him that is imperishable, undefiled, kept in heaven, unfading for you. He says, who cares if you're defrauded? Why not be defrauded? So many times people leave a church when they're wronged or maybe when they're defrauded. But what a gospel testimony it would be if they say, you know what, I'm not going to leave. I'm actually going to take that wrong, and then I'm going to reconcile. What a testimony. The gospel of Jesus Christ is able to reconcile every wrong that we have against someone else and, and reconcile whenever we've been defrauded, and that even if we're, it's not changed, the situation may not change. If we're secure in him, it, it changes our perspective, changes our heart. He says, why not rather be wronged? Why not be defrauded? But it's only really if they've heard the prior message of the cross of Jesus Christ. But he says in verse eight, but you yourselves, you wrong, you defraud even your own brothers. When I was a young child, our family was deeply hurt by a relative when they defrauded and they embezzled another member of our family. They were in business together as partners and they're supposed to support and care for each other. They were in it together, they thought. And the defrauded family member thought that they could trust the other family member. And it made it more devastating when they found out that, that this close family member was deceiving and stealing and embezzling funds from the business that they started together and it ended up bankrupting my family member to the benefit of this relative and it, it caused 10 years of financial hardship and pain it I, I never really understood something though is why my family member didn't sue the other family member and I thought, well, they should have done that because they could have avoided so much hurt and so much wrong and so much difficulty. And, and it would have been right to do that because it was the right and how awful. And yet that other family member was professing to be a believer. And so my dad decided that it would be better to take on hurt, take on financial difficulty and cause hardship for the sake of the gospel and the gospel witness for his relative. But I tell you what, it made it hard to relate and it's, it created a rift in the family. You see, there's something that is very personal about a family member wronging you and defrauding you, especially when they're doing it on purpose. Family is, was very important back then, it's still important now. Family can have a dramatic effect on, on who you are and how things turn out in life. And, and Paul, he talks about the church. He refers four different times to this familiar relationship. We're not just saints 
individually were made a part of the household of God. We're brothers and sisters. We're part of a family. Four times he refers to, to this generic word brethren, which means brothers and sisters as well. He refers to us as family. Do you view each other in the church as family? If so, it changes your perspective or it should change your perspective. Do you care for each other like family? Are you looking after each other like family? He says, if you are a family, but if you're defrauding each other and wronging each other, that's especially grievous because it's even your own brothers, even your own family. They weren't just sinning against Christian ethical standards. They, they dared to wrong even their own family of fellow saints. The problem was they'd forgotten who they were. They'd forgotten that they were saints with a secure future. They were, they were saints who were members of a family with a shared mission that can only be accomplished adequately as we together lock arms. They'd forgotten who they used to be and they needed to be reminded of their past as well. And that's the final thing we see Paul doing. He reminds them of the fact that, that we are saints who've been transformed. That's what we see in verses 9 to 11. That's, that's why he's pointing them back there. He's, he, he, he drew attention to the fact of the fact, what they're, who they are in the future. They're saints of the future. And then who they are right now, they're saints who are members of a family with a shared mission. But he also is reminding them of the past as well. He's reminding them of all the transforming effects of the gospel. The gospel has changed who we are, what we live for. It's, it's changed fundamentally our very nature. So we look in verse 9, he says, Don't you know that the unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom of God? Like, Paul, what are, you, what are you doing? All of a sudden you're talking about lawsuits and you're saying the unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom of God. We're saying, why do, you, why do you go outside the world? No one who's unrighteous inherits the kingdom of God. And it's also a warning here because he says, if you're turning back to those old ways of acting and securing your own rights and demanding your own way and seeking money or position or reputation, then that's an unrighteous way of living. And he reminds them that all the unrighteous, including those types of unrighteous people won't inherit the kingdom of God. There's a warning here. Don't live like that. Don't go to an unrighteous and don't be unrighteous because they won't inherit the kingdom of God. Unrighteous people aren't in God's kingdom. They're not ruled by God. They'll not inherit the kingdom. They're not a part of God's family. And yet, the Corinthian church, they were being self-indulgent and self-serving. And so Paul, he goes on to list all kinds of unrighteousness. It's just, it's just like you're being unrighteous and doing this, and, and why would you go to the unrighteous? And by the way, anyone who practices all these kinds of things on a regular basis, who makes a lifestyle of pursuing these things is unrighteous. And so he gives some examples here. He actually gives 10 different ways that people demonstrate that they are the unrighteous. And so he gives a list here. He says, don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men practice homosexuality, or thieves, or greedy, or drunkards, or revilers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, as you're reading through that list, some of you might identify with, okay, sexually immoral fornicators. I can see why those, those people wouldn't inherit God's kingdom, but I can see why adulterers wouldn't inherit God's kingdom. I can, I can see why those who practice homosexuality wouldn't or thieves wouldn't or revilers or swindlers or drunkards. But then he lists a few other categories here that apply to the church in Corinth and can apply to us at times as well that we can guard against is neither idolaters nor the greedy. 
I think greed is, is one of those sins that in the 21st century is no longer considered an egregious sin. We look at greed as just wanting what the rich have, and, and the reality is that, that greed affects each and every one of us here. It can tempt each and everybody here, every person here. It's those who make a pattern of grasping for what they can get now. And no one who's unrighteous, he says, will inherit God's kingdom. And what he's telling them is, but don't think that I'm saying that you are better than them on your own, he says, because such were some of you. And he doesn't mean that only some of them were, were sinful. Some of you were all of these things. All of these things, some of you are this, some of you are thieves, some of you are revilers, some of you are swindlers, some of you are homosexuals, some of you are fornicators, some of you are drunkards, some of you are revilers. All of you are unrighteous. There's no one righteous, no, not one. He's saying, such were some of you, but that's not who you are anymore. Don't look to the world for understanding how to live. That's not who you are anymore. And they don't inherit the kingdom. They won't inherit what's most important. And yet, if you are in Christ, you have made, been made righteous. You have an inheritance that is secure. It's the flip side of the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom is the righteous do. So often, though, I live for my own kingdom as if I need to secure it. And yet the message we need to hear is that We've been made righteous and our kingdom in him is secure. He's, he's given us his inheritance. They weren't living as if they will receive all things in Christ, as if the, the coming kingdom that they'll rule and reign with Christ is real. They weren't, they weren't living and being motivated by their future reality. They were instead seeking their own good as if their future reality wasn't certain, as if something they had to grasp as if it was something they had to attain. And the problem, really, that core, that motivating problem is true for a lot of us today. We can forget that God gives us a new nature. We can forget who we are in Him. We can forget that He's called us to be a part of a family. We can forget that our future is secure, that we have an inheritance. We can also forget who we used to be and that we're not that person anymore. Such were some of you. Here's the wonderful news. Here's what we celebrated today. In, in celebrating Nate's baptism, we celebrated the fact that none of us were righteous, that in the death of Christ, we all died. We celebrated the fact that we've been transformed into a new creation. We don't see it on the outside. We still look the same. Now, one day we won't. Thanks be to God, one day we'll be raised to newness of life in a way that our physical bodies will be raised as well and we'll, we'll see that new life. I don't know what I'm gonna look like, but it's without any fault or blemish or flaw. That'll be pretty cool. You might not be able to recognize me. Here's what this passage lands in. Look in verse 11. But you were washed... That's, that's what happened when we're made alive in Christ Jesus. It's not, it's not just he forgave us. He washed us clean. That's what baptism symbolizes. We're washed clean, completely purified, completely made new. We've been washed. We've been made holy. We've been sanctified, set apart to God. You were justified. You don't have to justify yourself. You were justified. All of this, not in your name, but in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, not by your own ability, 
but by the Spirit of our God. The whole Trinity here is at work. Who you are is you are a saint with secure future. You are a saint who've been made a part of God's family and you've been given this wonderful mission that we can proclaim through our lives what we're living for. And we're saints who've been transformed. Instead of getting caught up pursuing our own means, let's remember who God's made us to be. Let's remember that we're going to inherit the kingdom of God. We don't have to fight for things here. Let's, let's remember that we have an identity in Christ that's new. We don't have to fight for our name or reputation or respect. We have the respect of God. Why do we, why do we need it from the other people? We're saints with a secure future, the shared mission. We've been transformed. Our future, our present, our past, it's meant to affect how we live in the present. Let's not forget it. Let's resolve and seek to resolve disputes with each other based on who we are in Christ. And, and here's, here's the thing we can leave with is that resolving disputes begins with knowing our right identity is in Christ. Amen? Let's pray and then we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for even this word about lawsuits that applies to us today. I pray that you would help us see ourselves as in you, as saints, those who have been made holy, that we wouldn't live for unholy things anymore. I pray that we would, we would trust in the fact that our future is secure in you. We would see we have a high and holy calling that, that you will actually enable us to resolve disputes because you're gonna give us the wisdom to judge the world. How will you not also give us the wisdom by your Holy Spirit and through your word to resolve any dispute that we're encountering now? No dispute is beyond your help. Lord, help us believe that and see that. God, help us as well see each other as fellow family members, saints called together as a family. And Lord, I pray that you would help us see that, that we've been transformed and help us live according to that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.